So welcome everybody. At this time of the retreat, um, we'll offer something we call a Dharma talk. It's a chance to talk about the tradition and give more context to the practices we're doing here, and hopefully some clarification and inspiration. We still consider this a, a part of the retreat or a practice part of the retreat. And so what I recommend you do is actually treat this as a kind of meditation, which means that rather than putting your attention over here on me while I'm speaking, keep some of your attention aware of your own body and guide yourself to be present with whatever's happening. And most of what will be happening is the talks that we'll be giving. But uh, be careful of letting your attention sort of wander out away from your body um, and then get caught up in just the words that are being offered. But see if you can listen uh, from sitting down within your body. And listen also with your heart. So there will be content to what's shared. But see if you can orient your heart to the tones of what's being shared as well. And that way it's a little bit more of a meditation and less about uh, information exchange. So adopt posture that will help you be present. And here we are at the end of our first full day of practice on our nine day retreat. And already we've been here for 24 hours and we've been practicing now in silence for close to or about uh, 24 hours. I'm curious how it's been for you all. I have some educated guesses from past retreats, but I think there's a whole range of experiences that you've already gone through, each individually, and then as a room, going through the hour by hour of a retreat and the day by day. So if you could put one word to your experience, what's some of what's happened out there for you? Sum it all up in one word, <laughs> 20, 24 hours of experience. I can prime you all. How many of you have felt uh, some physical discomfort? Okay, just wanted you all to see that that's a common experience. How many of you actually have felt some settling, some comfort in your body? Okay, we'll all feel both of those. I'll give you another chance. What else have you experienced today? Anger, anger on a loving kindness retreat, it's very common. Yeah. Distracted. distracted. You guys can give the jazz hands too if you've also felt anger or distraction. Yeah. Sleepiness. Sleepiness. Yeah. <laughs> very common on retreats, but especially the first day as we settle in and realize how overextended many of us are. And then we come to. Uh, a neutral activity and realize there's actually quite a deficit. Um, other people, what have you experienced? Yeah. Grief. Grief. Yeah. Grief is so, can be so beautiful and it can be so painful. As are really all, our, all of our emotions. So that's some of what I'd like to talk about tonight. But people did mention that anger came up and grief, some sleepiness, some challenges came up. 
And then also I'm sure, given the length of time, there are also beautiful experiences that happen in our hearts. And that's some of the tone and the texture and the taste of being on a mindfulness or loving kindness meditation retreat is that we go consciously through the realms of the heart. We go consciously through the experiences of being embodied and we have more conscious intimacy with the workings of our hearts and our minds, the distractedness as somebody mentioned. And we're really building slowly and steadily self-intimacy and we're gonna really get uh, increase that intimacy and hopefully till finally we can be intimate with every aspect of ourselves, every expression of ourselves can be co-joined with some self-awareness, some patience, some perspective, so that each aspect of who we are in each day, each hour of each day, has that tone of having perspective, having patience, having kindness for our inner world and our outer world. And there's only one way to get there. You can't get a, a download, like downloading Netflix, <laughs> and just get the wisdom in a quick Wi-Fi download. You actually have to go through each one of these experiences patiently with some perseverance and slowly build capacity so that whatever reality serves up outside of you, inside of you, it doesn't uh, cause you to, to uh, turn away or to shut down or to rush in to fix, but there's some capacity to be with life as it unfolds. And really, there's only one way to do it that I've seen, and that's actually to be conscious in life and keep tasting life and keep building capacity. So there will be a full range of experiences like anger, like grief, like sleepiness, also calm, inspiration, creativity. And given the length of retreat, we'll all have uh, many minutes of many hours of many days flowing through ourselves and getting more and more accustomed to ourselves. Each day of the retreat will have a blessing, and each day of the retreat will have a type of challenge. And what's very common on the first day is there's some aches and pains in the body, ones that we brought with us, and ones that we discover by sitting this long, sitting still. Also some patterns in the heart and the mind, many that we brought with us and many that we'll face uh, rising out of the conditions of the day. And part of the challenge of the first day is that we're bringing to us the mind and the hearts and the bodies that are patterned in our daily lives. And we put them into this context. And the heart, the mind, and the body are slow to change. And so a lot of what we felt today is the, uh, you might blame it on the retreat, but really what you're tasting are the habits and patterns that we brought with us. One of the benefits of staying on a long retreat is that each moment you're on the retreat, it also becomes a new habit of the heart, the mind, the body, the sitting posture, walking, building the habits of being present. And so you're, you're building that momentum. But there is a little bit of a um, crash course on the first day, because it, it often is such a, um, a contrast to how many of us are living our ordinary lives and our daily lives. So that's some of the, the friction of the first day is becoming intimate, but then feeling into places we haven't been particularly conscious in our daily lives. There's an old um, 
There's an old Indian word called sankharas. I won't go too much into it, but sankharas are the habits and patterns that we intentionally use and build every day. And that's a lot, that, that is the old Indian word. Um, sankara, if you study Sanskrit and yoga, that word became, becomes a samskara, but the old word is sankara. And <clears throat> it is a lot of the terrain, the patterns inside of our body, patterns of our heart, patterns of our mind, um, are the sankaras. That's one word, one old word for the pattern. And our hearts and our minds and our bodies have these patterns. And they're patterned by how we use them. We have some things that are fairly hardwired, but actually one of the amazing things about a human body, a human heart, and a human mind is that they're very adaptable. They're very changeable. And so depending on how we use the body, how we use the heart, how we use the mind, it will reflect those habits. So someone mentioned earlier, you know, what do I do about this critic? It's really dug in. And as Spring said earlier, just with patience, that old habit doesn't get as nourished and it slowly weakens. And a new habit of self-patience, self-understanding, you can grow that. You can grow a new pattern. And luckily, very little of us is so hardwired that it can't be um, changed with uh, conscious exercise like we're doing here. I've been reading a, um, a category of books lately about neuroplasticity and understanding that the habits and patterns of our hearts and our minds are only there because that's the standard of how we think and how we feel. And we're rehearsing those patterns every day. And it turns out many of them can be changed, and that's a lot of what we're doing here, is that we're steering the heart and the mind towards loving kindness, and that will build as a strength. We can actually rework um, the habits and patterns in our hearts and our minds um, because of neuroplasticity, the way the brain changes with use. This one, uh, this one author um, said that the modern neuroscience, modern neuroscience believes that about 95% of our cognition as we're going through time and space taking in our input from our world, about 95% of it is unconscious. And what we're consciously experiencing is about 5%. But just because we're consciously experiencing 5%, the rest of our senses, our body, our ears, our eyes, taking in information and processing it, about 95% of it is, is not conscious. What we want to do is actually uh, submerge ourselves in these practices of loving kindness on this retreat, for example, mindfulness, presence, so that they become more of our default setting, so that it begins to be part of our 95% governing system. So we don't have to work so hard and so intentionally at it. It actually becomes more of how we're oriented. So every moment that you're pointing your heart towards loving kindness, rather than letting it do an old habit of wandering into an old story pattern, you're changing your habits of mind. You're changing your habits of heart. And it's that steady, patient work that does change the underlying patterns in heart, mind, and body. 
And we've seen it on every retreat. And it's one of the reasons we use this in intensive submersion format of a silent retreat, is that you put yourself in these conditions. And then if, you're, if you can be patient and if you can be supported while you're here, a lot of that underlying patterning that we get in daily life does begin to break apart, does begin to shift and change. And your heart and your mind, your body begin to reflect what it's like to be present, <coughs> what it's like to feel life as you go, building that strength and building that capacity. But a lot of what we felt today is mostly the density of the patterns we brought with us. And one of the things you'll feel day by day as we go is that you'll be building momentum just by being here. We mentioned yesterday that this retreat is in itself a, an amazing experience to be silent for nine days, especially again in contrast of what a modern life tends to look like, how much stimulation and communication is going on all day long, and then multiplied by our computers and our cell phones. I've never joined Twitter because I can't imagine adding another information stream to the one that can barely keep up with the information streams that are happening. So it, it kind of astounds me that there are people who multiply. And then I, I work with uh, young people, like teenagers, and they multiply their information streams so that it's, it, there's so many modes of communication going on and so that, that is sort of our modern hyper-stimulation. And then to come to a retreat format, there's sort of a um, going cold turkey on all that uh, hyper-stimulation communication. But this retreat will happen in the arc of our lives. And so again, these, each day we're here is beautiful, but there's this other hidden thing that is hard to measure, and that's how will this, this retreat impact the rest of your life? How will the habits and patterns we develop here, come with us. That's one of the beautiful things about um, the loving kindness retreat is that it's so clearly, now you can see the muscles that we're using. Spring offered the classical loving kindness phrases and that's one of the things you repeat them and at first it takes some effort to remember them, to repeat them. After a while it becomes like a song that you've sung and it gets easier and easier in fact that you can get the song stuck in your head. And it's easy to remember the phrases when you go back home in odd circumstances, you find because you practice them here and you have to know them here, then they come with you for the rest of your life. So these four simple phrases about safety and happiness, wishes for health and wishes for ease in the world, every time you say them, you're building that habit, it becomes second nature over time. And then it's within reach in complex situations, like when we go back home There's a, <clears throat> there, there, one of the teachers in our tradition, Sharon Salzberg, quotes another teacher in our tradition, um, that's why I'm spacing her name, Sylvia Borstein, about a time that she was on a plane and the plane had an emergency while it was flying. And there was sort of a panic that swept over everybody. And one teacher talking about another teacher was inspired by the fact that when the plane got into trouble, the loving kindness phrases came up. I remember when I first heard that story, I was like, that would never happen to me. I just don't remember it that much. Like I remember it on retreat, and I need all the retreat support to remember these phrases, but out in daily life, it's just so chaotic. But she told that story, I practiced, put in my time, 
And then now when planes, when the plane starts to uh, hit turbulence, the phrases come up because of that story. So now there's a ripple effect of how that story has been teaching and rippling out. So I recommend it. Know these phrases. And then when you need them, it's actually a beautiful thing to be on a, a plane, you're kind of cruising along and it hits turbulence. And the first thing my heart does is it quickly goes to like, love everybody on the plane. You know, this might be our last moment. Let's go, to, let's go down consciously. Let's go down caring for each other. Why not? I mean, why, why end in fear and terror? Why not end um, loving everybody? And I'm so surprised that this heart has that capacity, given how I grew up. I'm surprised that that's a habit that I've built that's in reach at a time when there's stress and duress. So that will happen to you. And that's, that's sort of a larger context, a larger benefit of the practice is how it comes with us. So there are um, two things I wanted to talk about. And again, it gives context to the practice we're doing. One is about building a sense of sanctuary and letting our hearts be sanctuary. And then from that place of inner sanctuary, turning back to the world that we live in and being of service, and how loving-kindness practice um, can really fuel both of those endeavors, to have inner sanctuary and then to be sanctuary for others through presence or through active service. Before I came to Buddhism, I was um, deeply involved with um, with social activism and um, service. I was living in Portland in the late 80s and early 90s, and there's a lot of environmental movement work happening in the Northwest. And also a lot of um, um, sort of post-60s, but carrying on getting more and more passionate, looking at social ills, social stresses, social oppression, and trying to be engaged in that as a college student. I was very committed to that work. One thing that was very frustrating, having gone to a lot of trainings, where they train us on how to be nonviolent, they train us how to be present, how to do our service work in a way that wouldn't perpetuate the violence we were trying to stop, is that it would all look good on the blackboard of the training, of the whiteboard. But when I went to do it, there'd be so much reactivity and so I didn't really know how I could actually actually transform the heart like I wanted it to. I could see examples of it around me, but my own heart had these tangles, had these um, defense mechanisms, these irritations and impatience. But luckily I could see it in the people around me. And that was my first clue that it could be done. So um, there was a time when I was spending a lot of time at the Nevada nuclear test site trying to protest the nuclear testing that was happening there. I met a lot of really beautiful, beautifully hearted elders. And they, and they began to show me earlier on, that's where I want to go. I want to have a heart like that. I want to have eyes that glow like that. I want to exude peace like they do. I'm just young though, it hasn't happened for me yet. But they're the types of adults that I want to become. One of them was a very um, beautiful a Shoshone Native American elder named uh, Corbin Harney. 
And he was there because it was their land that all the nuclear tests were going on. And so uh, the environmental activists joined with the Native American elders to create a movement. And to see him day in and day out and over the years, just how steady and um, beautiful, his eyes were so steady and so beautiful. When he looked at you in the eyes, he looked at you with his whole heart. And so that was, uh, I, I look at many adults in my family and didn't see that reflected back that often. So to see it in someone else, like, wow, that's, that's really profound. And also seeing the, uh, the Quaker activists and the Catholic activists, to see the spiritual activists, those are the ones that had the, the most power of presence. I saw non-spiritual activists and they had power of conviction, often power of anger, power of defiance. But that defiant energy often was in troubling and boiling inside. And so there'd be this impatience, there'd be this urgency, which has its place because it's very impactful to do that. But it also sets up this um, discord in the struggle. So it's beautiful to see uh, spiritual activists, especially the elders, see how beautiful their hearts were. And then fast forward on my first retreat, like this, coming to a silent retreat, I began to see that this is an actual mode of transformation. I saw what I wanted to do when I was around the spiritual activists, but I didn't know how to transform my heart. And then to see this was the actual um, the spiritual gym of going into my heart and strengthening capacities. And then learning that a lot of the patterns that I came to the retreat with, even though they, had, they were my patterns in a way, they were not my fault. I'd grown up in a culture with many mixed messages. And by being very young and growing up in this culture, I couldn't help but be influenced by it. And so sitting quietly and being frustrated by the way my mind would wander and seeing that there, wa- there had been internalized um, racism, internalized sexism, internalized um, societal standards that my own heart's values didn't agree with, and yet I still walked around having been influenced by those habits and patterns. And so to come on a loving-kindness retreat and to see that if left to my, left my heart's own devices, it would just repeat the habits that it knew. So if you just sat here, it's possible you'd get quiet because you weren't stimulating yourself with a lot of uh, information from the outside. But still your heart would wander and it would tell stories and you could see it just moving through the canyons it had created, very trapped by old conditioning. And then to see that we have these beautiful four phrases, repeating them with sincerity, welcoming my heart forward to match the, the values that I had inside, but really let it be expressive and let it be steady. That began to plug in my heart and began to build capacity and strength to be uh, oriented towards loving kindness. And then to find that I had brought with me a habit of impatience or habit of anger. And on the retreat, I would feel that. I would feel the consequences of that. That's one of the things that uh, you can feel on a retreat that's harder in daily life, is you feel the consequences of your anger. Out in daily life, when anger arises, it often feels justified and you might even like the power that it feels like it plugs you into. So then when we practice anger to feel um, like we're feeling a little more empowered on an issue we're frustrated by. But on retreat, you can actually taste how much suffering there is in that anger pattern. 
And so as you might have felt today, and as you'll feel through the days, one of the things that will educate you about what real love is, what real beauty inside is, is that when your heart is in a beautiful place, you will feel empowered, but the power doesn't come from division. The power doesn't come from anger. The power actually comes from love and understanding and courage. Beautiful factors of heart, you can see that they're beautiful. And then ones that we use in daily life, you can really see the consequences of them, of what it's like to harbor resentments. My brother never li listens to my Dharma talks. My whole family, they space out the moment I begin talking about what the last 30 years of my life has been like. They have no context for it. So I would be, I'd be willing to talk to my family about what I'm going to say, but I'd be so delighted if they actually heard what I'm about to say. <laughs> Studying my family and what it's like for them to be marginally conscious and look at their habits and patterns after 50 years of knowing them and what it's like to have them be governed by the habits and patterns they are, it kind of shocks me, but I learn a lot from it. So I learn a lot from my brother, and if you're listening to this, uh, <laughs> I'm open to the phone call, or hopefully not the cold shoulder that comes when we cross this line. But my brother polishes his resentments like trophies on a wall. And I've known him long enough. And every now and then I just like, you're still resentful about that experience you had 30 years ago? And it's so available to him. It's like he pulls right off and just begins like every detail. It's just so curated and so perfectly ready. And his resentment is just as sharp and just as embittered. It's like, wow, wow, why would, why would you do that? And I know him a lot, like he doesn't want to feel like he lost in that situation. And so he, he finally told us the empowering story, which is full of bitterness. And then he keeps it very nearby because I'm sure his mind wanders to the past. And if it goes into this old story of pain, he has this resentment right there to guard him. I've been on enough retreats to know that I'll get into my resent stories, and I kind of like them because I'm always right in my own version of history. And if I'm not, it's very anxiety-producing, so I work on it until I can tell the story that puts me back <laughs> in the right perspective as the victim or the hero of my own life drama. But being on retreat, I can feel I'm doing that, and I can feel the consequences of that habit. I can feel that it brings in insecurity. It doesn't bring security. It actually begins to enshrine insecurity. That's what I'm reaching for in daily life because I don't know what to do. But my resentments, my defenses, they're how I navigate intense situations and how I was taught when I was growing up to navigate tense situations by fighting through opposition, through defensiveness, through lying, through you know um, bending the truth just so I could not feel the pain of a particular circumstance with somebody. And on retreat, I actually begin to taste what that pattern is like. It's like, oh, it is so insecure. Why? I wish there was another way. And by not feeding some of my more dysfunctional habits, letting them grow softer, then I have to feel often what that habit was, perfect, was protecting me from. There's a shame I don't want to feel there's some place I haven't loved myself, and so I don't like it when people push me into that realm of myself. I try to avoid it. So I begin to relax these strategies of defense on retreat. 
I begin to feel some of the underlying emotions, physical sensations, some of the concepts I'm worried about, that if you really knew me, I wouldn't be lovable, and having that doubt. And from that, I have to, I have to at least a whole collection of activity on my part. If I can actually go down and feel what's below a, a lot of these strategies, I might be able to begin to actually put love there. And if I can put down below what's driving all these defense mechanisms, then I find the defense mechanisms aren't needed. That tends to be what happens over the days on a retreat and over what it's like to take these practices home and have a daily practice, is that we stop nourishing the defensiveness or the egoic embellishments. We relax that. We feel life below all those strategies. We find that we can feel life on that level and therefore we don't need all these secondary strategies to get us through hard times. I do this for myself and I do this with students. When we find a really tender place and we finally don't have to rush in to fix it, but we build capacity to breathe and be a little you know, unnerved, but here's something, here's a fear coming up, or here's an old grief. And I just don't like going there, but when there's finally capacity to breathe while grief visits or anger, or a really beautiful, expansive love, but even that's a little bit too expansive. It gets unnerving sometimes how much love there is. I create a little altar in my mind, this very sacred spot where I could go into an old pattern, but here's a sacred moment of breathing into a new pattern, a new capacity to feel life on that level. Right after I graduated from college, <clears throat> I'd studied um, science and I'd gone very deep into it and just felt that my brain was going to fall out or was going to expand and then burst out my skull in the intellectual realm. It was just so imbalanced. And so I, I spent a year living in Portland as a potter, did a lot of pottery. And I, <clears throat> that felt that it wasn't plugged in enough. And so I started working for a homeless shelter for teenagers and so about the time that I was going deep into the work in this um, crisis shelter for homeless teenagers, I was also doing intensive meditation retreats. And one thing I began to see is that being in the intensive meditation, in the crisis shelter, there'd be a way that slowly I would become burned out. It was very hard to stay that intimate with the amount of suffering that the crisis shelter would put me in contact with. And I looked around and I saw other people kind of burning out and you'd get a little cynical, a little defensive. And then I'd go on one of these meditation retreats and I would learn to feel life on a deeper level and be supported in feeling life on a deeper level. And then I, I could feel my heart working through all these contractions and then turning back more towards the end of the retreat where I could actually breathe and love the world again. I renewed my heart. And I go back into the shelter. And <clears throat> one thing I didn't know to do in the very beginning was to put a buffer day between the retreat and walking in the door of the crisis shelter. And so I'd, you know, the retreat would end on a Sunday and Monday morning I'd walk into this crisis shelter. And as I was walking, got out of my car and looked at the shelter, like, oh my God, I don't have my defense mechanisms. I can't even remember where they are. I just spent nine days dismantling them. And Temple, you need those. Like, 
you forgot how intense it is. It was so idealistic that you could love your way through a workday in such an intense environment. But I have to go, and I would walk up the steps, and I would start using the practice, because it was about the only thing I actually had after nine days on a retreat like this. I found that it actually brought a power that I didn't know I had. The retreat was actually powerful, not just on the retreat, not just back in my ordinary life, but then using the power of retreat to engage pain in the world. And I began to discover something that other people call socially engaged Buddhism, where I would take a retreat like this and I would go courageously back into the world and use loving kindness practice, the very practices that we're doing here with the phrases, the images, recalling my heart, orienting my heart out of fear, out of resentment, into presence. And I began to see it was his own power in the world that the homeless teenagers that would come in the door when I was cynical and defended, they would sense that. It would take them days to trust me. Off of a retreat, the kids would feel very quickly that I didn't have a big agenda for them, that I'd practiced presence, that I'd practiced listening, that I had cleaned up my heart so it wasn't so defended. And I wasn't offering them um, these uh, unconscious routines. I actually could receive somebody. And they were hungry for that. They were hungry for safe adults that could really look them in the eye and hear the, the size of the pain that they'd just been through. And so their own defenses would relax. And I began to see for a couple of months after a retreat like this, I could offer something to the world that was very rare. It, but it meant feeling life on an incredible level, which was beautiful when I had capacity, but then due to daily life and kind of not supporting it as well as I could on retreat, those capacities would average in a little bit. I couldn't quite meet the next teen who walked in the door on the same level. So I knew I needed to refresh my practice, needed to really commit to it. Because life, having opened my heart, was sacred and beautiful, and then the contrast of watching my heart shut down again became unbearable. But it was bringing this reclusive, secluded practice in a larger arc of being engaged in the world that showed me a spiritual path that I really wanted to be on. And so that touches a little bit on these themes of sanctuary and service, that we sit here day by day. In this particular retreat, we're bringing so much attention to the tone of heart, quality of heart, and becoming sensitive as the heart goes through different expressions of peacefulness and steadiness, where love is easy, saying the phrases feels very natural, and other times where there's sleepiness or dullness, where conflictual emotions arise. Building your own capacity to stay oriented while your own grief arises, your own fear, your anger, and when that wave arises and passes, and then being oriented to when peace comes again, or when love begins to expand in your own heart. Beginning to see your own heart when it's open and when it's clear and when it's been purified is, is so incredibly beautiful. And that's really your heart, not somebody else's heart, 
not some other saint's heart, but your own heart can become so beautiful and becomes your greatest gift to yourself is having your own clear, radiant heart where you work out the kinks and the defenses and the ways we shut down. As your own heart opens and becomes sanctuary for yourself, it also becomes sanctuary for other people. About a year and a half ago, um, my 23-year-old niece died suddenly. And it was a real shock um, to my whole family system. And we all sort of uh, fell into grief. And um, you know, all of her friends and all my family members, it, was, it, was, uh, it just initiated this uh, long journey of grieving her and trying to understand the fragility of life and the size of the loss when someone we love passes. But due to being on this path and having enough support inside, I breathed with the grief. And it taught me a lot. It, it educated my heart, it grew my heart. And so my niece, you know, uh, her passing was probably bound to happen. You know, we all are born, we all die. But being intimate with life, feeling life, and then going through a great loss like that, over time it really began to um, grow my heart in a way that um, I have a newfound love of life and its strength and its courage and its tenderness and its fragility. And now my own heart is stronger in relationship to life and death. And it's actually a gift in a strange way, it's a big thing to have someone pass. But one thing that was born out of her passing is I'm so much more awake around the preciousness of life. And that's a gift to me. It's a gift to my family. I believe it's even a gift to her. I don't know how to put my finger on it, but I still feel very connected to my niece. We still, I still talk with her. She still feels very accessible to me. But my heart has grown so much through that journey. It was really painful, but it was beautiful uh, as my heart could have capacity to feel life on that level. And then it becomes a gift for others. It becomes sanctuary for others. Other people who had been conscious around grief saw me and my overwhelm around grief and they gave me really good advice, mostly just listening. And then my heart steadied. And now my heart is a greater resource for other people because I, I understand the journey of grief. I understand the journey of anger. I understand the journey of fear and anxiety because I've grown the capacity to show up in those places. And luckily it's not just about the hardships, but the hardships are often where we contract. So that will be a part of your journey here. But as you go through the waves of whatever comes up, on the other side of the wave often is a release. On the other side of the release, you will see in your own heart a calmness you haven't known, or an appreciation of life, or a sense of unity with living with all of life. That's hard to get in daily, in daily life. 
So it becomes a sanctuary for you, it becomes a sanctuary for others. And then in feeling life on that level, often the response is to celebrate what's beautiful and to feel compassion for where, where there is struggle and difficulty. And so service, the heart of service grows out of this feeling of life about becoming a sanctuary. And so as spring went over earlier, the practice <clears throat> uh, luckily is simple. It's not easy, but luckily it's simple in its basis that we have these three things that we combine. We have phrases that we start with. We have images of people, of animals, or even places that we've been where our heart has been open in the past, where our heart is easiest to connect to. And then we have the actual strength of heart that we're inviting. So we invite the heart to be open and warm. We support it with images. We support it with phrases. And being steady, being persistent, never forceful, you know, while being patient and persistent at the same time, being able to repeat the phrases, recall images where your heart has been most easily open and warm in the past, either in receiving love or in feeling love. And then we give it time, like a tea bag soaking in really good warm water. It soaks and it soaks and then it releases all that beautiful tea essence inside the leaves. And so you're all like little tea bags <laughs> floating in these retreat conditions. And if we support it, if we get the balance right, not too challenging, but also not having the water too cool, if we can support, the heart does begin to open, and then this beautiful heart essences begin to open. So one thing to keep in mind is that it comes in waves, that we never, we never get it and then get to stay there. Often there's an opening, and in the opening we feel some integration in the heart, the, the beautiful essences in our, inside of our own hearts open up and we feel that patience, we feel that sincerity, we feel that connection. And what I did in the past, which set me up for some suffering, was to think, oh, now I've done it. Now I've arrived in the sweet place. It's so obvious. I will never go back to clinging. I will never go back to judging. I've arrived at this blessed place called the open heart. And it would open, and then I would feel so discouraged when the opening would last for as long as it would, and then the heart would begin to close up again. And I'd be like, please, no, the begging phase, the bargaining phase. If you just stay open, I'll give you more chocolate. I'll find, <laughs> please stay on the open side. And then finally my heart would, uh, would close again. And I'm like, damn, now I got to go into this closed heart. It'd be dull, it'd be quiet, it'd be tired, it'd be grumpy, it'd be aversive, it'd be judgy. And so I would think I had failed. Or I would, and really what was happening is just waves. And over time, what I've learned, what I wish I could uh, put a gentle hand on all your backs and just say, it's just waves. And I wish there was some way to just whisper that in your ear. It's waves, don't worry, it's waves. The waves can be hard, but luckily they're just waves. 
I got to spend a year as a ordained monk in Burma. And the waves never stopped. So that wasn't it. I thought if given enough time, the waves have to stop. I'm pretty sure that I can conquer these waves. And they never stopped. But what did change was my ability to let the waves come and go. And that's actually where a lot of um, relief came from, is having the, the strength and capacity not to need the heart to be open all the time. And then to let it have phases. So one of my first loving kindness teachers, Michelle McDonald, <clears throat> when I would come to her with some frustration, I was like, ah, oh, I was so open yesterday. Yet today is the day I come in and talk to you about, and I can't really show you how open it was. I'm going to show you how shut down it is, and it's tired, and it's grumpy, and it just wants to go. And she's like, yeah, hearts do that. They open like flowers, and then they close. They need resting phases. I was like, oh, I can call this a resting phase? She's like, yeah, it's just a resting phase. You're regrouping for the next opening. I think that's a nice way to hold it. I'll, I'll, I'll hold it that way. So my heart would open, and I wouldn't need it to stay in the open phase, and my heart would go into a resting phase. So that will happen for you. You'll have many waves, and I wish you patience and faith to let the waves happen. There's also a part of the practice where there's purification, where things that are trapped down in our bodies, in our hearts and our minds, that we usually fend off in daily life because they're really irritated, they're really grumpy, they're really fearful, they're, they're realms of ourselves we don't like to go into. We get to know them on retreat because we're so intimate with ourselves on retreat, there's really no distraction, no external distraction. But there's also a part of the retreat where those things get flushed out. And you actually want them flushed out. But the way they go from trapped inside to out is they go through a moment of expression. So you might find not only does your heart go in an open phase and then to a quiet phase and open again, but your heart might go open, closed, and then releasing something that feels very, um, very counter to loving kindness. You might find yourself sitting there and releasing a lot of anger. It's like everybody keeps talking about loving kindness and bliss and I'm just like a, I feel like I'm a microwave without a door on the front. I'm just like, <laughs> just radiating out this irritation. Just so you know that that's common. It doesn't happen for everybody, but it's common that people go through purification cycles and we'll talk about that. It's happening to you, um, just so you know, it's par for the course sometimes to flush out um, old trapped emotions, old trapped energies, and you actually want that flushing out to happen. The long term is great. It's just as hard in the short term. I was on a, <clears throat> a three-month loving-kindness retreat, which started, I was going to be bold and just do the first month as loving-kindness, and then the second two months, a different meditation, just mindfulness meditation. About that first month, I realized how much purification was happening, and how much I needed. So I, my sole intent for 90 days was to love humanity. And my actual experience was despising humanity <laughs> very intimately. And it was so defeating to go in there wanting to love, but like what came out was just a lot of old anger. And it got so bad that um, I couldn't sit in the hall when everybody sat. So the bell would ring and people would start trickling in and that was my 
my sign to actually leave the hall. And then people at the end would go out walking. And I was like, ah, everybody's not walking. I gotta go sit. I spent most of the retreat having to be in the opposite schedule. Because I'd sit there and like, oh God, here comes that heavy breather. Oh, love them, love them. I was like, I know, but they, the breathing is driving me crazy. I just can't take it. Uh, and here goes that person when they when they uh, make their tea, they keep clinking the spoon on the side of the cup. I, it drives me crazy. I can't take it. It's like oh, I have a judgment on everybody. Oh, and trying to practice loving kindness. May all beings be free. May all beings be free, but not the breather, not the tea person, and not the. the oh, I'm just so irritated. And luckily, my teacher said. You know, that's purification. It's good. And I was like, yeah, if you say so. I, I have a lot of faith in you, but wow, there's so much coming out. And yet that retreat was like squeezing the sponge and getting all the, the gunk out. So all this stuff came out. It was really healing to have that happen. So while I don't wish that on anybody, I wish the outcome for everybody. So if you're going through that period where grief is coming up, you're on a loving kindness retreat, but your heart really seems to want to visit a very old, old loss. Or you're sitting and an anxiety comes up about the state of the world and you're trying your best to renegotiate yourself back to calm and back to presence, but there's a lot of despair for the world. Or a lot of uh, old anger comes up and your mind is really telling those stories. As long as you're not feeding it, feeding the anger, but if it's coming up, it's often coming up to be released. Just so you know that that happens, and we'll talk more about that. Also, I just wanna say it's not new that our human hearts have been this complex and that every Every country around the world, every people throughout time, they've been born with human hearts and have had to navigate human hearts. So as far back as we can remember, people were asking these questions about the complexity of the human heart and how to have insight, how to have direction, how to open the heart, how to feel true love and true peace. So a lot of mythology that we have for almost every culture is trying to, uh, every culture has developed its own stories, its own spirituality, trying to help grow and stabilize the beauty of the heart. There's a, <clears throat> there's a recorded story of um, an old holy man coming to meet the Buddha after they met, uh, he asked a question. So this holy man comes to the Buddha and he asks, a tangle within, a tangle without. People are entangled in a tangle. Gotama, which is the Buddha's family name. I ask you this, who untangles this tangle? The Buddha replies, a, perp, a person established in virtue, developing their heart with wisdom, determined and astute, they can untangle this tangle. So a kind of a very brief 
and poignant question, understanding that the heart has complexities, the heart gets tangled up, gets tangled up with itself, your own self-relationship gets tangled up with the people around you, gets tangled up in larger social movement, uh, movements. And it's a tangle within a tangle. It's this ball of yarn that's so incredibly wrapped up. There's so many people and each human heart is so complex. So who, un who untangles this? And the Buddha responds, also very brief and to the point, a person established in virtue. Being established in virtue in our tradition is to be ethically attuned. That's one of the beautiful parts of loving kindness, being a sanctuary, being of service to yourselves and to others, being ethically attuned with virtue. As uh, John described, the five precepts are one ways that we train in that. The five precepts could be thought of something that you just do because they're good and we all agreed to do them. But when these, gu these guiding precepts are also an expression of a heart full of loving kindness, a heart that's sensitive to the world, then the precepts aren't so much things you're supposed to do because they're the right thing to do, but you secretly wish you could do otherwise. Your heart begins to love virtue, begins to love the precepts, non-harming, saving these spiders, putting them out, non-harming each other, looking at direct ways that we harm, looking at indirect ways that we harm, and being sensitive to that, and through that sensitivity, figuring out another way to relate where you're not harming, where you're not stealing from each other, where this incredible power of uh, sexual desire, sexual activity, we're in a stream of uh, sexual beings, you know, generations being sexual. It's in us, we all have a relationship to that. But can we be conscious in that? Hello? one just went off. I think the topic was too great. <laughs> so back to sexuality. <laughs> See if I don't blow out the, the second mic on the topic of... But letting, uh, letting our relationship to letting our relationship to sexuality be one that's conscious. And because this loving-kindness practice is so relational, we can bring consciousness into our sexuality. How are we doing back there? Need it up a little bit? Can you hear me in the back? It's okay? I don't see any response. Okay, good. <laughs> And also bringing loving kindness into our patterns of speech and communication, letting the heart uh, express itself through these beautiful modes that we interrelate. And again, we could just have the precepts as something we're supposed to do, but it also can align with loving kindness, with this compassionate heart. And we become people and communities established in virtue, developing our hearts with wisdom, determined and astute, we can untangle this tangle. So with that, the Buddha gave his uh, brief response to the person who asked the question, 
they had a little more dialogue, but that was the that was the pith of their exchange. So let's conclude tonight's um, discourse, and let's just sit together for a moment together. Let these words settle. finding a posture that allows your body to be relaxed at ease in these conditions. And yeah, it's still upright, a sort of relaxed dignity in your posture. bringing someone to mind, some being, a person, an animal, a place in nature, some place where your heart opens easily. And see if you can say these simple phrases with sincerity. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you live at ease. Tune into those phrases, tune into the image in a way that supports your sincere heart. A gentle, steady invitation to be heart connected with the present. And now very patiently continue. I'm gonna ring the bell to close this session. I invite you to keep exploring while you do walking and further sitting. Gently and persistently recalling these phrases, these images, and inviting your heart to be open. And then relax into the waves that actually happen And just with some faith and perspective, know that it's, they're all passing waves.
something you can relax into. We have a half hour for a walking meditation and a nice dusk evening. And then in a half hour we'll meet